Competition is a reality whether you work in a for-profit, a non-profit, or even a faith-based organization. Often we assume that if we win, someone else has to lose. But that's only one way to look at strategy. In this episode, how to create opportunities that don't disrupt what others have already built. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 641. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Many of the conversations we have in the context of organizations are often in the framework of win-lose, zero-sum. That is the way traditionally a lot of business strategy has been framed over the years. But there's so many more ways to look at it and such better ways to be able to frame the strategy in our organizations. Today, a guest with us who has helped so many of us to reframe our thinking and to do better, not only for ourselves and our organizations, but also for the world. I am so pleased to welcome Renee Mabon to the show today. She is the INSEAD Distinguished Fellow and Professor of Strategy at the Global Business School, INSEAN. She is the co-author of the 4 million copy global bestseller, Blue Ocean Strategy, which is recognized as one of the most iconic and impactful strategy books ever written. She is also co-author of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Los Angeles Times bestseller, Blue Ocean Shift. To date, Blue Ocean Strategy and Blue Ocean Shift teaching materials have been adopted by over 2,800 universities across the globe. In 2022, Harvard Business Review selected Blue Ocean Strategy as one of the most influential and innovative articles published in HBR over the last 100 years. Along with her colleague, W. Chan Kim, she was named the most influential management thinker in the world by Thinkers 50. She's the first woman to ever secure that top spot. She is the co-author with Chan Kim of the new book, Beyond Disruption, Innovate and Achieve Growth Without Displacing Industries, Companies, or Jobs. Renee, what a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to be with you. Me too. And I have not shared this with you yet, but I never read Blue Ocean Strategy when it came out. I'm one of the four or five people I think who didn't. And the reason I didn't is because my manager at the time when I was working at Dale Carnegie had read the book right when it came out and told me all about it. We had a number of conversations. He walked through all the thinking in the book and it influenced a lot of his thinking and his strategy at the time. And it got us doing some things, which in a firm that had been over 100 years old, sometimes didn't always move on things that were new. So thanks all these years later for being an influence in my work and in my career, even though I hadn't read the book. Well, thanks, Dave, for sharing that. And now we got to get you to read that book, Dave. Yeah, indeed. Well, and I'm, I've <laughs> dived, obviously, in your work a lot in the recent past. And, you know, I really was struck at the start of this new book. You mentioned that your work has been defined by an ongoing conversation about strategy and innovation. And that whenever you get into that conversation, the topic of zero-sum thinking always comes up. What does zero-sum thinking look like and sound like? Well, you know, in strategy, zero-sum competition or zero-sum thinking looks like, you know, my win is your loss. 
So I'm in a market share battle and the more market share I gain, my intent is to take it from you. So Coke versus Pepsi, they're all taking an existing industry and assuming demand is stable and consistent. And so my win, what I win comes from you losing in your market share. In the field of innovation, it really looks like disruption. So I'm going to win. Disruption is really a one wins, a thousand loses game. So Amazon wins and we see all the firms that go out of business on Main Street in retail, or we saw in booksellers. So it's really that my win is your loss theory and it's played out everywhere. And it's in all the benchmarking company doesn't do in strategy. And it's in all the efforts and innovation for me to destroy and displace you that we see in Silicon Valley and in boardrooms. There are three big distinctions that you make in the book, and the three are disruptive creation, blue ocean strategy, and non-disruptive creation. Could you illuminate those three and the distinctions between them? Yeah, that's great. So disruption, if we simplify that, is when you offer a breakthrough solution to an existing problem. So Amazon gives a breakthrough solution to retail and boom, it wins. And then most of Main Street or a lot of it significantly gets displaced or destroyed. We see that. And that happens when uh, you create a new market within an existing industry. So my win, again, is your loss or the loss of many. Blue ocean strategy occurs when you create a new market across existing industries. Here, there's a margin of disruption, but also a lot of non-disruptive growth. So Cirque du Soleil, you know, it gets created. It's part circus, part theater and opera. It doesn't exist in either industry in particular. Stole a little bit of customers from circus, a little bit from Broadway and theater, but also pulled in all new demand. So it's across existing industries. And then beyond disruption or non-disruptive creation, which our new book is about, which was very exciting to us because we've always assumed as you started the interview that in one way or another to win and blue ocean, we see that too, to some marginal degree, there's an element of destruction that occurs. But when we looked into our research, we started to find all these cases of companies creating industries and new markets that had no displacement at all. In other words, positive sum where my win doesn't come at anyone's loss. And that occurs when you create a new market outside of an existing industry. So if you look at 23andMe, the billion dollar company creates a new market for genetic testing, you know, directly to the home for an individual, and it displaces no single industry. You look at Square with the Square Reader, it allowed micro businesses and individuals to accept credit card payments. It doesn't disrupt or displace credit cards nor existing payment technologies and opens up a new billion dollar business. And that was what really excited us. So one is within disruption, blue ocean strategy is across and non-disruptive creation is beyond or outside of. But all three of them, the commonality is they create new markets or what we call blue oceans in the bigger sense. Yeah, it's it's really an exciting way to think about opportunity and growth. And you write, non-disruptive creation creates new industries without leaving failed companies, lost jobs, and destroyed markets in its wake. It offers the immense potential to innovate new markets where none existed before. If we could, under- if we could better understand this other form of marketing, market creation innovation and how it works, we'd be better equipped to achieve it. And like 
I, I think that's the thing is I really studied your work and was thinking about it like, wow, what an opportunity. And yet it really does require a different kind of mindset than I think a lot of leaders have been trained for and accustomed to, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, you know, the whole second half of our book is all about the how. Yeah. How do these companies do it? How do you identify these opportunities? What questions do you ask to see what prior you could not see because you don't have that lens? And then how do you unlock those opportunities? And then how do you realize them even when you don't have significant resources? So even I'm a startup or I'm a small business within a larger company and my boss hasn't handed me a lot of resources, how can I be resourceful and still make new opportunities happen? And so the second half of the book is all about the very critical question of how do we move from thought to action to achieve real measurable results? Yeah, and I really zeroed in on the chapter on leading with the right perspectives because like so much of this does come down to it certainly doesn't end with mindset, but it but it starts with like what is my thinking and how do I think a little differently? And you invite leaders to lead with some of the right perspectives on this and one of them is to flip our mental scripts and you make a distinction between structure and agency. Could you tell me about how those two are different and distinct? Of course. So structure is the world as it is. So in an industry, we analyze an existing industry, who are the suppliers, who are the buyers, competitors, and we start our strategy, our innovations perspective by analyzing what is to imagine what could be. But the second we do that and we start with structure, we allow structure to determine and limit what we see as possible. The other thing is agency. Agency is our free will and our imagination to imagine what could be. And what we're saying is most companies analyze what is to imagine what could be. They let structure drive their agency, which limits the opportunities they see. It makes them play on the chessboard of life. When in reality, we are all capable of creating a new chessboard. And to do that, you have to start with your imagination. Imagine what could be and then look to structure. So that's what flip your mental script means. Start with your agency, your free will to ask new sets of questions instead of the world as it is. And companies that create blue oceans that are non-disruptive all begin that way. They imagine what could be instead of what with what is. You mentioned chessboard a moment ago and used that analogy in the book. And I thought that was like such a powerful analogy because we when we start so many things in business and in life, like we tend to pull out the chessboard and like, okay, how am I going to like make the pieces work so I can win? And we don't sometimes stop to think, well, what's an entirely different way to frame this before I actually get into the board itself? And I would imagine that this is when you're working with leaders and having conversations about this, that shifting that mindset is hard to like consciously step away when you see people who are able to shift on that to step away from the chessboard at least initially and to think about possibility what is it that helps them to start to take the step to do that i think one of the critical things and i go back to how do you identify a non-disruptive opportunity 
you need a different lens that you can look at to apply because otherwise, as you said, it could be paralyzing. Okay, I can't look at what is, but then what is the alternative? Like everything else that's out there. So in our book, we articulate what are the two paths to unlock in this term, in this sense, non-disruptive opportunities. And that is, okay, I'm not going to look at what is, but what I want to begin with, what are existing but taken for granted problems or opportunities that no industry exists that addresses? Or what are emerging problems and opportunities that are rising due to demographic shifts or shifts in society or new technologies like AI and smart machines? Why do we give those two paths? Because you want to start with understanding what is the problem or opportunity you want to create. You want to start there. And that allows you to start to open your mind beyond with what everyone else is doing to begin with, because no one is doing those things yet. So that's the first step, Dave. Yeah, it, it's it's important and yet a, a hard thing to do of like really stepping away from it. Who's doing that well now? Like when you think about organizations that you've seen who have made that shift in recent years, who are you impressed by? Well, I think there's a lot of them, but let me just go back to, because I said Square, and I think everyone knows Square and yeah. the little white reader that you have. You know, everyone thought that it was taken for granted that when you're an individual or you're a micro business, one of the inconveniences of being a small guy or an individual is you can't accept credit cards, even though that's the most convenient form of payment historically for most Americans and people around the world, actually, in the developed countries. And we just take for granted that that problem always existed. And when we're one of the bigger players, if we ever get there, yeah, we'll get credit cards too when I grow up. But they said, well, why should we have to wait till when we grow up? And Jim McKelvey, and this is one of the ways, is when you yourself think about and lean into the problems you directly experience. He himself, Jim, who co-founded with Jack Dorsey, had a, a, a glass blowing store huh. and he sold glass blown objects. And he lost a transaction once for a unique piece of art because he couldn't accept a credit card payment. They had no cash, no checks on them. And he knew they would never come back. Those are like impulse purchases. And so he said, well, how could we change that? Why can't we do that and create and solve that problem? So I would say like, that's just a simple example. Or you look at GoPro, right? Nick Woodman, he says, why are cameras only... Um, do I need to have someone film me all the time when I'm doing sports and doing that? I want to be able to film myself. I don't want to need a third party. Why can't I do it? Why can't it get wet? Why can't I use it for my sports high-level activities? And he starts to say, well, maybe I can do that. So this is how they're all stepping off the chessboard and stepping into reality there. So in creating this new market. So those would be just two companies that I think everyone could think about, or even in esports, Dave, where did esports come from? They started finding out in Korea that lots of young were, were video games were a big part of the culture, even before it was really as big in America. And they started to find out in these, you know, cafes where people would go there for coffee and playing the games, video games, tons of people would stand around and watch young people play. And they said, well, wait a minute, people actually enjoy watching video games as much as playing the video games, just like people wa like watching tennis as much as playing tennis. Why can't we start playing, creating live action sports 
to watch video games and create esports. Why can't we do that as well? So those are just some of the people that are starting to ask different questions. But in the book, we give you the two different paths and the ways to do it. So you with your team on a Friday afternoon could say, you know, we always think zero sum. What if we wanted to do a non-disruptive opportunity, non-disruptive market? Chan and Renee identify these two paths. Let's just brainstorm. What problems do we take for granted that we could start to overturn? Or what are some emerging problems that we could start to address that are outside existing industries? And then with the examples that we give, it starts to widen your thinking and inspiring you. And you can start to have those conversations and really get some good ideas on the table. It's interesting. And and it's so, uh, thank you for those examples, by the way. And it's so, when you do it well, like how massively successful it can be. I mean, I think about how much has changed with Square and the ability for small businesses to take payments. I'm in our kids and I go to Angels games here in Southern California a few times a year, and I I I prefer to use digital payments whenever I can. But I've I've been in the habit of always bringing cash to the game to pay the parking person because that's like the one place where you still need to use cash. And the last time we went, I handed over my cash, and they say, "Oh, actually, we don't take cash anymore. We only take." <laughs> credit card payments. And I thought, how ironic that is that we've come full circle over the last decade on that system and how powerful that's been. And and speaking of technology, it's, I mean, we're all so captivated by everything that's happening in technology, AI especially right now. And there's a bit of, there's an invitation and there's also a bit of a warning in the book of don't confuse the means with the ends. That Technology enables, but value innovation is ultimately what creates a non-disruptive market. What's the confusion that organizations and leaders sometimes make on this? Well, I think you hit it on the head, Dave, is that people are so enamored by technology. So you see a lot of companies put a a lot of money, hundreds of millions, even billions into new technology without asking, where's the real value and use for the users? Why should people, how is it going to make your life more convenient, more simple, have more fun, excitement, lower risk? What is in it for people? And so what we always say is think about when you want to create, what's a leap in value? How is it going to change buyers' lives for the better, whether a B2B or a B2C? And then from there, think about technology as enabler How can you leverage technology to achieve that to lower your cost structure? And I think the biggest mistake people make is they think that technology is what drives new markets when it's not. It's fundamentally about value. I mean, Meta's had, Facebook has put so much money into Meta, billions. Now, of course, they're letting go of lots of people in there because they wanted to lead with technology. And they thought, if we're first and we're best and we have all this technology, people will come. But the experience wasn't worthwhile at all when people went there. It was boring. Some people said there were some violent activities going on. There wasn't much to do. The caricatures that you created or the avatars were funny looking. And so they really hadn't thought through the real value of why it's of interest. So yeah, maybe I'll go and try it for a few hours just for the novelty of it to see what it's like. But if there's no value, you're you're not returning. So you have to really think about what is the leap in value you're going to provide to buyers first. And then it can be achieved with or without technology. You know, you don't always need it, or it can be achieved by using existing technology that's already out there that you repackage. And why that's also so important is 
not every company has hundreds of millions or tens of millions or even 1 million to invest in technology. And so, you know, what we say to people is start thinking value first because you may not need that technology or you may through your resourcefulness as we articulate in the chapter on the how, be able to leverage other people's technology and not take that cost on directly yourself. So you lower your cost structure. So those are lots of different reasons you may be saving yourself a lot of money and a lot of loss by thinking that way. But one thing is keep your eye on the prize and it is leap in value for users. It is not technology first. No. Yeah. And yet it's so tempting. We see these cool new tools come out. I find myself tempted by them in our business to try things out. When someone or an entity kind of goes down the path of technology and and playing with it and the technology is really driving the intention versus the value creation. What what would be the kind of thing a leader organization would notice that would maybe be an indicator that we're maybe putting the technology before the bigger picture? So what's a leap in value going to provide to users through this? Tell me in a minute and a half. How does it make their lives easier, simpler, better, more convenient, less risky, more fun and exciting? Tell me, if you can't tell me in a minute and a half, you're sleeping with technology. So go back and start thinking about it more. You have to convince me why would my grandmother or why would these five businesses down the street, if it's B2B, in a five-minute sales call, because no one has time, why would you have hooked them by what you're saying? Where's the value to them in it? And that's what I want to ask. So what? The question is, so what? Great. Bleeding edge technology. If you're trying to win a Nobel Prize, I congratulate you. You want to win an R&D scientific paper? I congratulate you. But for the average user, whoever that is that your target customer is, tell me the value now. And you should be able to tell me simply and fast and easy. And you said a moment ago that being able to leverage other people's technology is one avenue toward that up. What's what's an example of like how an organization might do that, that, that works better than maybe taking it on themselves? Well, you know, we talk about how do you realize non-disruptive opportunities? Because people hear it and they think, oh God, you know, am I capable? Of course you are. You know, we talk about Bette Graham, who was a secretary and she created liquid paper, this white whiteout that we all use or oh, yeah. our children use. Yeah. You know, she created that. So we are all without us appreciating capable of it. But what we're talking about there is how do you realize it is resourceful? So let me give you an example of technology to your point and go right back to Square. So Square, Jim McKelvey and Jack Dorsey had the idea, let's create and the ability for an individual or a micro business like a farmer's market vendor to accept a credit card payment. How do we do that? So they had this idea and they said, well, we can't devise this technology, but what's something everyone has is a smartphone. Everyone has a smartphone. So they said, what if we use a smartphone to read a newspaper, take a photo, to listen to music? What if we could use it to accept credit card payments? So they said, okay. They said, but gosh, you know, to use an iPhone, the way that you have to do that is you have to come up with a contract with Apple to plug it into where you plug in for recharging. They want to have royalties. They have all strict requirements. It can take a long time. And so Jim McKelvey started thinking, well, how could we be resourceful? So yeah, we cannot develop you know, a new payment processing system. We can leverage the iPhone, but is there another way we can leverage all of Apple's multi-billion dollar R&D budget? And he said, well, what if instead of plug- plugging into the docking station, 
we plug into the universal jack. If we could plug into the universal jack, I don't have any agreements I have to sign with Apple. Mm. I owe them absolutely no royalties. It actually will work not only with Apple's iPhone then, it'll work with the Android phone, it'll work with Samsung, it'll work with everyone, be universally applicable. I multiply the size of my market and I owe no money to anyone. It'd be free to me. Now they get excited. They're being resourceful. And so they were the first people to figure out how they could use the jack to attach that little white square that you run your credit card through to accept it. So in the um, beyond disruption, and this is whether you're doing a non-disruptive market, your traditional business, we lay out what are the paths to resourcefulness that most companies don't take advantage of. You know, we articulate, it's not the resources you have, but your resourcefulness that determines whether you're not, you create these new markets. So you have no money, don't be overly concerned about it right away. Start understanding. And there was Jim and Jack leveraging all of Apple's entire R&D budget for $0. And they had a universal payment processing thing that everyone already had to create that. All they invented was a little white square that went on top. Yeah. That was it. it it's really it's really fascinating. And like in retrospect, it's so obvious. And yet, like how often we miss that in so many organizations and strategy. I have a dear friend who runs a nonprofit, and one of the struggles she often runs into is other people who have the same heart for the issue she does of wanting to start new nonprofits and kind of start from the ground up and begin something new and found something new. And how often people fail to look at like what's already in the ecosystem that they could partner with and actually make a much bigger contribution to the work that everyone's trying to do. And yet we often think that like we just have to do it all ourselves. We have to build it from scratch, from the ground up versus leveraging what's already there. And it's just I think like it's it's a great invitation to just think like how can I actually think about that the technology as a as a path first before like just jumping in and starting to build stuff and take things, new things on. Well, in Beyond Disruption, we really articulate what are the different sources of resourcefulness because a lot of people don't know what are their different like okay I've got to be resourceful but what does that mean. Yeah. So one is, you know, how do you leverage other technologies and other people's resources? And that's one of the ways. But, you know, we lay out multiple different paths that most companies don't even think about. And so, you know, we also lay out how do you identify all the assumptions that we make that lock us into that existing chessboard? And how can you flip those? And I think one of the things that we often find is that when companies, you know, we're good at competing in zero sum because that's what we've historically been doing. Anything you've been doing for a long time, you get good at. But actually, if we have tools and a process and a way to think actually differently, it's amazing what companies and individuals are able to do when they start to apply that. And that's why, you know, we try to give some tools and frameworks and a lot of different fun examples where we really walk you through, because as you see how other people did it, you start to get inspired about how you can do it and say, oh yeah, if they did that, well, wait a minute, what, why are we thinking like this? Why couldn't we think like that? And that opens up a whole new level of discussion and thought. And actually, once it does, Dave, your mind never goes back because you start to see how many blinders you had been putting on yourself that you could just start to let go of. 
Yeah. And that's when you start to see opportunities where before you saw nothing. It's very exciting. Yeah, it is because then you've you've learned how to learn as far as utilizing this process. Uh, yeah, it's it's super cool. There's one other invitation you make in this part of the book, and it's to unlock the many, not the few. And mm-hmm. you write, they cherish entrepreneurs or creative people, but recognize that overemphasizing them leads to underemphasizing the creativity and contributions of everyone else. As a result, a vast expanse of human creativity and ideas risk going overlooked and underappreciated, even though that's precisely what's needed to solve brand new problems. Again, comes back to our societal shift of we think about like these iconic entrepreneurs, creatives, but often we miss the bigger picture, don't we? I, I think so, Dave. And what we have found in working with companies around the world is the creativity exists in every level of an organization, whether it's in realizing opportunity or, as I was mentioning, Bet Graham, the secretary who at the time in typing found that every single secretary, when you made a mistake in the old days, you had to rip it out and retype everything. And she started saying, well, wow, you know, I'm a painter. And when I make a mistake, when I paint, I don't start all over. I just paint over it. And why can't I paint over my mistake? And she started using white tempura paint in the office and other secretaries saw it and she created this whole new, the whiteout market that was there. Yeah. And I guess the critical thing is for us to think about the talent and ideas of everyone. And I think if someone asked me, who is the hero of your book? You know, if disruption, you might say it's Jeff Bezos, maybe because of Amazon and who is the hero of non-disruptive creation. And, and, you know, we say it's Bette Newsome Graham. Because what we have found in working with organizations is that that creativity exists in all levels of an organization. And if you give them different sets of questions, what they're able to contribute is tremendous. And so that's what that's tapping into. And we have to remember, I mean, if you look at, you know, it just mind blows my mind when I go on YouTube or I even look at blog posts written by someone without any education, right? And making a funny video. You can see how much creativity the average person has. Yeah. You can see how much they've done. They run their own family. They run their house. They deal with their children. They deal with their spouse. They deal with their animals. And yet they go to work and we pigeonhole people. But they're so much more cre- creative and capable. And so we try to pull them always into discussions on these points. And I can tell you, they always, always are one of the big contributors to how to make things happen because they ask the questions that often others are afraid to ask because they think, God, that sounds so dumb. So let me l- end, w- end with one comment on mindset because you were asking. Please. And that is, you know, in our book, we articulate the importance of a could, not a should mindset. That's really cre- key to realizing it. And what we mean is a lot of companies say, what should we do? When you say should, what are you doing? You're saying, what is the answer? When you say the answer, you suddenly mentally freeze everyone because you're thinking you've got to find, and if you're going to say something, you've got to say what the thing is, the right thing, or you're going to look stupid. But when I say what could be the answer, suddenly I relax people and I open them up because I'm not looking for the answer. I'm just looking for possibilities. And so now I can go broad and wide, and that allows people to start asking, what if, why not? How about that? And no one feels stupid when they're putting their ideas out there. So it's very important to think could, not should in realizing it. And that's how you start to engage when you're saying, 
unlocking the many and not the few. You just say, you know, what could be? Let's throw some ideas out there. What could be, not what should be. And then that is very um, important um, lever in getting people to think broader and being willing to let go of their defense mechanism and trying to be so super smart and not make a mistake to put other ideas out there. And then you start to say, wow, now that could be something interesting. So you and Chan have been all over the world teaching the framework of Blue Ocean Strategy. And as I mentioned in the introduction, so many universities, institutions have adopted this model and this thinking. It's really, it's changed so many of our minds on how we think about strategy and, and business. And I'm curious, as you've been doing this work, especially over the last couple of years, particularly this new book, what's something that you've changed your mind on? I think over time, the one thing that has really, let me say, deepened in our mind is building on the point I just said, is how much people, every individual is capable of when we equip them with the tools and process and some of the different sets of questions they can ask. We never stop being impressed by people at every level in an organization. And people actually want to all make a fundamentally positive contribution to their organization and to themselves. It was bringing their pride and it allows companies to succeed. And I think that would be something that we have walked away with, with enormous confidence and conviction in. And the second is the range of opportunities, even in non-disruptive creation, and this new idea how many new markets and industries we can create beyond existing industries. As our research deepened, we started thinking about whether pet Halloween costumes, my goodness, $500 million industry. Yeah, amazing. Disrupted, right? Life coaching, one of the fastest growing industries, no technology, non-disruptive industry, hair color, non-disruptive industry, esports. all of these are non-disruptive. And I think The other thing we saw is how many more opportunities are out there if we start to shift away from just thinking we have to disrupt and destroy others. Renee Maborn is the co-author of Beyond Disruption, Innovate and Achieve Growth Without Displacing Industries, Companies, or Jobs. Renee, thank you so much to you and Chan for all of your work. Thank you. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 430, How to Start Seeing Around Corners. Rita McGrath was my guest on that episode. Also, one of the top thinkers, as recognized by Thinkers 50, has done incredible work on innovation. In that conversation, we looked at the reality that leaders are called to, of course, think about the future, think about vision, where's the organization going over time. And of course, none of us can predict the future, but we can look at the trends and we can start looking around the corners, as she calls it. There are some practices that will get you and your organization start starting to do that better. Episode 430 is a great starting point for that. Also recommended episode 580, Help People Show Up as Themselves. Frederick Leloux is my guest on that episode, and we talked about the process of helping people show up in better ways. And it is one of many of the pieces of the constellation of reinventing organizations. That's the title of his best-selling book. The reason I'm thinking of Leloux is that his work has really inspired many of us to think about organizations and their structures and their cultures in non-traditional ways. And I think it fits in beautifully with 
with Renee's message for us of thinking about how we can create in a non-disruptive way. There's also some amazing ways that organizations are doing that today, many successfully, that episode 580 is a great starting point to introduce you to Frederick's work. So a a great place for that. And then also recommended is the more recent conversation with Tiffany Bova, episode 633, The Mindset to Help Your Organization Grow. We, of course, have all heard the advice of making sure we're focused on the customer or client or stakeholder, whoever your organization serves. And it also means paying attention to employees and serving them well. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And Tiffany and I talk about that in that conversation of how as an organization can we, yes, both address the needs and the mission of serving customers or clients well and also at the same time, how do we take good care of the people who work in the organization? The best organizations and leaders are doing both of those and keeping both of those at the forefront of their thinking. Episode 633 is your invitation on where to begin that thinking process as well. All of those episodes you can, of course, find on the coachingforleaders.com website. Speaking of strategy, the strategy of the website is to be as useful to our members and listeners as possible, period. That's what it's really designed to do. That's why we designed it in the way we did. And one of the key benefits inside the free membership is to be able to help you to find what's most relevant to you right now. And so we have sorted and tagged all of the episodes aired since 2011 by topics. You can find exactly what you're looking for right now. So maybe it's under strategy, which is one of the areas, but maybe it's how do you develop talent inside your organization? Or maybe it's a core management skill on delegation right now, or how do you be more productive with your time? Or how do you handle meetings? Well, so many different categories dozens and dozens of others inside of the episode library. It is one of many of the benefits of free membership. If you haven't set up your free membership, I'd invite you to do that. Go over to coachingforleaders.com. You'll be able to access all the benefits of free membership, the audio courses, the book library, so many other resources there. And if you're looking for a bit more, Coaching for Leaders Plus may be helpful to you. You'll see that when you go in the free membership of some of the areas that you won't have access to, but Coaching for Leaders Plus, if you go over to coachingforleaders.plus, you'll see all of the additional benefits that come along with membership in plus that will allow you to go even further and discover more insights to save you time of being able to find what's relevant to you right now. Be sure to check that out if you haven't already. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Smith. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Moro Guillen to the show from Wharton. Moro's going to be showing us how generational learning and working is changing, and boy, has it changed a lot in recent years. Join me for that conversation with Moro, and I'll see you back next Monday. <laughs>